Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk and make a podcast. This is Yolando. And as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. Which we won't get to because we never do. And we we're sitting and at we... my very creaky dining room table at my very creaky dining room chairs. So sorry about that. Um, and what? I just need to let everyone know that, you know... With all your talk about wanting to run, I know, and I needing to run, we should run. We should I know, run. I know. We should start running again. Okay, Kate, let's run. And who was ready to run today? You were ready to I run. I was today. ready to run. And who I wasn't? I was not ready to run. Mm, I was okay. not ready Just to run. Let the record show. Let the record show. Um, let <laughs> also awkward transition. Let the record show. Um, we. Do always have like a very casual five minute conversation about what we're going to talk about on the podcast before we hit record. And usually you come to the table with two thoughts and I say, I don't know, I'll figure it out by the time. We, but we um, are not going to talk about um, the murder of Tyree Nichols today um, because uh, Yolando doesn't feel ready to talk about it. And it's really... Um, raw. Just, yes, very raw. Yeah. And so we we probably will in the future, um, if and when he. I mean, I'm obviously going to defer to you in that. So just, I mean, I just, we just want to acknowledge. If, if you know, we're not. If we had said nothing about it, then you might think that we weren't aware or that we didn't think it was significant, and um, that's not the case. But sometimes, um, you just need to know when you're not ready to talk. And I do suppose, I think sometimes as a white, if you are a white person like me who desperately wants to be an ally, um, I think it's important to recognize that you don't have to force your friends into having conversations that might be um, traumatic or emotionally um, traumatic for them in a different way than it is for you. And to really say like, Hey, is it okay to have a conversation about this? And if not, then not right so that's all to say we're not going to talk about that today yeah so. and i appreciate that i have been um um thinking about when and how i want to um talk about it because i know i mean immediately when i heard the story i felt a heavy depression come on me and i knew I was like, I'm, I'm just not ready to, mm -hmm. um, I've, I've watched the story, watched the news clips and, um, yeah, I need to sit with it for a while. Mm -hmm. So we are going to talk about what is astonishing us. So what is astonishing you friend? Let's see. I attended a funeral, um, a couple of weeks ago and it's a funeral of a friend of mine, someone that I've known for Oh my, almost as long as I've been in Charlotte. Um, Rochella was a musician. She served many historically African-American uh, Presbyterian churches in and around Charlotte. She was also a seminary grad and um, never sought ordination. Um, she was this wonderfully um, eccentric personality um, she would, you know, call you up and say, hey, I've got a word from the Lord for you. And uh, whenever I called her, even when she was 
busy or had something on her schedule and said, Rochella, um, I need a musician this Sunday. Do you know anybody? She said, I'm coming. I will mm-hmm. come and help. And so she was just very available, willing to serve, um, had a beautiful, powerful voice, just a real anointed musician and anointed disciple of Jesus Christ. And I, I really appreciated um, her ministry and her kindness to me. And I, and I always looked at her as kind of a, a big sister um, because she just had this real uh, mature um, uh, air vibe about her. Um, you know, people said uh, during the service that, you know, she had an old soul. But I was astonished when I went into this large church where lots of people were gathered and I saw her picture on the screen and the date of her birth. She was actually younger than me, mm-hmm. um, born just a few months after me. And so I just felt all kinds of ways about this person who is my age and her, her death. Um, but what really got my attention was um, during the service, a member of her family stood to address those of us who were gathered. And this person said, um, I'm not sad that my mother is gone. I'm not grieving that she's gone. And I don't want anyone else to be sad. And I don't want anyone else to grieve. And that, that really... Um, it really struck me in a very heavy. I, mean, I wanted to, I wanted to raise my hand and say, "Can I, yeah. <laughs> can I, can I push back against that a little bit?" And, and I don't, I don't, I don't mean to tell anyone how they should feel about mm-hmm. their loved one passing, but I do recognize that we're in a moment in the church that we seem to have this thinking that grief. And faith are somehow opposites. Yeah, right, incompatible. And I, yeah, and I want to proclaim <laughs> that you can be a person of deep faith and deep grief. That they are not opposites. And so, I, you know, I went home and had a conversation with my wife. I said, you know, if if I, if if I were to die sometime soon, I I I want you to miss me. I, I want yeah. you to be sad that I'm gone, that I'm not here, and, and it's okay. And um, last Sunday, so following the sun, this service that I attended, this funeral for my friend, the week after that, the Saturday after that, I had a service that I was um, giving, um, I was officiating and giving the eulogy for a member of Derrida Church and spent a lot of time talking about grief. And I noticed that in preparing for that service, and listening to friends and church members and family members, right? People wanted to talk about a celebration of life and that this person had passed on. No one said the word died mm-hmm. or death. It's like we desperately want to avoid death. And I'm very aware. Um, I, I remember uh, in in our our denominational guide to i mean we don't even call them funerals anymore it's like a service of witness to the resurrection a celebration of life anyway um it says that the two things you do during that Mm -hmm. service is that you acknowledge the reality and pain of death 
and you witness to the resurrection of yeah. Jesus Christ. Those two things. And I try to do those two things at every single funeral. Mm-hmm. And so when when we when we avoid the reality of death, when we avoid the pain of death, that someone is gone and we're in pain and we are missing them. And grief is a sign of love. It's a sign of missing something or someone that you love. And it's okay to grieve. And we witness to the truth of the resurrection. So I'm just thinking about um, my own death. Mm-hmm. And um, and and letting people know it's I, I I want you to miss me. I will miss you. <laughs> you will miss me. Mm-hmm. Well. I mean I I'm I am confident you will outlive me. But well. but no, I mean I just think it is so interesting that sometimes we think that having faith means that death doesn't matter to us, and so we don't we talk about someone passing on or someone being alive with Christ, and of course I believe. I believe that that, that is, true. is true, but you know, the good news isn't good news if death isn't bad news, right? Like if, yes. and so I just think, you know, this is a difference. I, I think a lot of times we try to smooth the rough edges off of faith and make it seem as though it's just completely seamlessly integrated into American culture, which I think is having a moment of, of sort of saying like, well, death is a part of life and death can be, you know, celebrated and it's beautiful and it's, you know, and I think to be able to live our lives without fear of death is a really important thing. That's a but, gift. But to understand that death is a tragedy and death, as I read scripture, is not part of the design of creation. And, and, you know, Jesus does not show up at Lazarus's funeral and talk about how wonderful his life was. Um, and it was just great that he had been here and let's just give him thanks. And like, we'll remember him every time it rains. And the, or, I mean, like, that's not, yes. that, that's not the message yes. of the gospel. If the gospel isn't good news in the face of death, then it ultimately isn't good news. And so I think to be able to hold that paradox of, um, you know, death is, death is a, a rending of the fabric of creation. I believe that. Like, you know, I think there's that famous uh, prayer of Francis of Assisi and talking about like sister moon and brother sun and sister ocean and brother land and sister birth and brother death. And I'm like, no, he's not my brother. (laughs) Like, I just don't, maybe I'm wrong. I'm wrong more often than I'm, I'm not, but I, I just think that's the fundamental. Well, scripture calls death an enemy. Right. And, and I think the reason that even at the grave, we can make our song Alleluia is not because death doesn't matter. It's because death does matter. And ultimately it is swallowed up in life. And so I don't know, you know, I don't have any idea and frankly can't, don't have the capacity to imagine how the reality of life beyond death will be, could be. I, I don't understand. I have, faith, um, not understanding, but I, I think grieving is, you know, if there is no grief, then there's no love, um, which, you know, is sort of the problem with the way that we can, um, so seamlessly integrate mass death in our culture Yes, because we just have a, a real lack of love and interconnectedness and our lives can just sail on smoothly without any 
any disruption because we we were separated from one another. So um, I get that it's tricky, but I'm with you every time I'm privileged to um, serve in worship at a funeral. You know, I really do um, get the sense that people are, that we haven't done a good job of um, helping people live into that core Christian Orthodox truth. And so people hear it as if for the first time, every time. And while that's a great privilege and I'm glad it makes me sad um, that, that we aren't discipling people in a way um, to look at death clear eyed and soberly and also defiantly. Um, Yes. And when you get um, down the road with people, um, who have had loved ones to die, and they start to grieve, they start to feel sad, then what you have to deal with is a sense of guilt. They right. feel guilty about their grief, and that's a burden they should not have to carry. Well, and I just think, you know, it's hard um, because, you know, my, my father died two years ago, and it was unexpected, and I recognize just what a privilege it is what an extraordinary thing it is to be, you know, 45 years old before you lose someone significant in your life. Um, but one of the things you realize is like, Oh gosh, I will never have another day in my life where I'm not whatever else I'm in. I will also be sad. And that just sort of, I wasn't prepared for that because I don't think that we talk about maybe we do talk well and I just wasn't listening. Um, but just this idea that if you really love someone, even if you are joyfully reassured that they are swept up in the love of Christ, you're not ever at a point where you're like, Oh, well, I don't, you know, it's, it's insignificant to me that this person is not with me. So I, I just think, you know, there's this sort of realization of like, Oh gosh, this will never go away and it's not ruining my life. Um, but it is, it's unexpected. And I think, um, and it makes me realize, um, in some ways, like how limited I was previously as a pastor for not really understanding that. Yeah. I would Um, include what you're saying in that, um, line in Psalm 23 about, um, walking in the shadow of death, the valley of the shadow of death. Yeah. Um, it's not just about our own death, but the knowledge of the death of those that we love. Right. And the reality is it says, I will fear no evil. It doesn't say I won't experience it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think this reality, like there, there is grief, there is loss, there is evil, there is suffering. We don't fear it. We soberly face it and we have hope as we walk it out. Um, we're not swallowed up by it, but we don't get a free pass out and of that, it. That reminds me, there was a, gosh, this was probably about three years ago. NPR had this great piece on the history of funeral homes and how we have sanitized death, yeah. right? So at one time, it used to be that when you died, the person, um, their body was in their home was laid out in their home and people would come and visit it would be in the parlor and yeah yeah um and then um this whole the system of vaults in a cemetery that was to 
keep the ground even. It has nothing to do with the person in the casket, but cemeteries want their their land to be smooth and nicely manicured. Listen, and I, it's, I cannot it's even sanitized. handle... At some point, we should talk about the whole industry of death and the way that it exploits... The funeral industry just exploits people in extreme vulnerability um, and how municipalities are complicit by making it really impossible for people to participate in any kind of death ritual of their loved one without enriching. I mean, like, it just makes me crazy that people have to, you know, come up with thousands of dollars in a moment of tragedy. And, and, you know, I think if you don't, if you don't know, you can look at some of the GoFundMes or things that you've seen and think like, oh, this isn't reasonable or people are exploiting it or whatever. And the reality is, it, it, it is, it is that, it is that much, particularly if you go in to a business that is founded on the principle of, well, how much do you love the person, right? So we can't grieve them, but we can spend a lot of money to prove that we love them. Anyway, this is beside the... So what's astonishing you? Um, you know, I have just been thinking a lot um, and marveling and being astonished in worship at the Grove um, at just how brave and beautiful the community is in creating worship every week. And I, um, I just... So we... Um, have a philosophy, a culture, values around worship that I, I think is is different than a lot of other places. I'm not saying better. I'm just saying different. Um, and and a, a core value for us at the Grove is that um, people have opportunities uh, in our community um, and that people can take risks in our community. And, and as a pastor, I just passionately and fundamentally believe that worship is something that every human being is um, meant to do and that we are not consumers in worship and that when we come together for corporate worship, what is happening is an equipping um, for, for our being in worship, like when we are apart. Right. And um, that the people leading worship are doing just that they are leading the whole community in worship. They are not um, proxy worshiping for the community. They are not performing for the community. That worship isn't the right um, that's reserved for the elite few who will do it right. That worship is something that every human and particularly everyone who's called by Jesus and is following Jesus, like we, we learn how to worship and it's not natural, right? And, and part of, for me, just the beauty of the sanctuary is it is a place where people um, can can come and be gathered in and can be given sacred space um, to to lead the community um, and to really testify. And I think that there's a lot of different ways to do testimony. And some people have probably been a part of a worshiping community where a testimony means a very specific thing. Like you get up and you tell part of a story about your life with the Lord, or maybe the story of how you came to know the Lord. And then you invite others to do the same, or, um, or maybe you share the story of a particular answered prayer 
as encouragement for other people. And I think that is true. Um, and also anytime we stand up in worship, um, if we are singing, if we are leading a prayer, if we are, um, you know, calling people to confession or announcing the pardon, just all of, or calling, you know, calling people to the offering, but it's all testimony. And so, um, we as a community, people can and do, and it's right and good to, um, read a prayer or find a liturgy and share it. And that's great. Um, but, but we really try to make space and honor people, um, like writing their own, right? So if, if I'm inviting someone to, um, lead confession or give the pardon, I would say like, Hey, I, I, here are some resources. I can write something for you, but, but really it's a beautiful thing when someone can stand up in front of their brothers and sisters and say, this is, this is what I understand about God's invitation to confess our sins. And here's what it's looked like in my life. And I invite you to join me in this because every single one of us is going to have known and experienced God's grace in that differently. And it's just, I think it's so important to witness to the body of Christ that there are just an infinite million numbers of ways to rightly worship God. Um, and it's really important that when people think about worshiping God, they they can trust that the Holy Spirit is leading them and and not that the Holy Spirit is trying to force them to become someone else, right? And it just takes a lot of courage and risk to follow the Holy Spirit. And and the temptation is just to to idolatry, right? It's just to say, well, as long as I you know, think this way or feel this way or pretend to think and feel this way, then I'm doing it right. And then I'm okay. And I can't really bring my true self before the Lord because that might not be sufficient or adequate. And so I just, um, you know, we invite people to lead and want to be a place where people learn, um, that their, um, gift is sacred and a space where we learn to honor other people's gifts and and a place where we honor the journey that people are on that you know if we're a disciple making community then we have to be a community that celebrates people as they begin and as they learn and it, and um particularly as a community that is called to be um a healthy and holy multi-ethnic community we have to be a community where we can talk about what it means to be people of different ethnic backgrounds trying to come together to be the one body of Christ. And um, it's hard to talk about race and, race and ethnicity in America because there's just so much pain. There's just so much pain and so much raw woundedness. And it, and it is so hard um, to desire reconciliation and it is so hard to believe that you can be reconciled and it is so hard I think for speaking as a white person it's so hard for white people to face the enormity of what has been done in our name and the systems that have been propped up and how much damage they've done and so the temptation is to just never talk about it <laughs> um, and just to think like well if I never say anything then I'll never say anything wrong. Um, and so I just, I don't know. I'm just marveling. I, 
the way I think that the Lord is creating a space where it is safe for people to grow and learn and share who they authentically are and where they authentically are on the journey. And um, I have come out of so many worshiping communities where what mattered was that you did it right and that it was excellent because if what you did wasn't excellent, then you aren't excellent and then God isn't interested. And just to sort of see how much that is in line with the culture of elite imperialism in our country, but has nothing to do with what I see witnessed in the gospels where Jesus invites a lot of people that the world didn't think were very impressive or promising, and then just invests all of his time and energy in them, seemingly with no anxiety over whether it would be, quote, worth it, and doesn't shame them into showing up in a way that wasn't authentic, like creates a space for them to you know, for Peter to be bold and say, I believe you're the Christ. And also he feels so safe that immediately after that, he thinks you're not going to Jerusalem. Like <laughs> this is not the way. And like, just how beautiful it is that the community around Jesus was so safe that people could be real. And what, because they could be real, what came up was often what was beautiful and of God. And then also what was not of God, what was of the devil. And because it was, revealed, it could be addressed. But I think in so many of our faith communities, because our belonging is always implicitly at stake, what we're often trying to do is just not mess up. Mm -hmm. So like not say something that might be wrong because I'm a, I'm afraid and I'm afraid people will just run me out or not tell the truth when someone has deeply wounded me because I'm afraid that if I tell the truth, they'll say, well, so what? I don't care. You're too sensitive or whatever. And so we just have this place where we only show some of what's real. We only show the tip of the iceberg. And then we wonder why we can't grow in love for one another. And so I just, I don't know. I have grown to love the exposed seams in worship. Like I've just grown to love when I can see that someone is up there and just really bare knuckling it right and really grasping for words and really just um growing and I'm and I know that sometimes there are people who come from other places who just feel like well worship's not the place for that and the sanctuary is not the place for that let people grow and learn somewhere else and let's just bring the best to God because God deserves nothing but the best and I just think sometimes you know we really need to watch what we're defining as best because I would think that trying to make our communities as close to the culture and value of Jesus's as he was on earth discipling was God's best. And, um, that just means a lot of times in worship, I don't feel like I'm in control and I'm not. And I'm worried that I see something that's so beautiful, but that other people might perceive it as, um, not, um, and not just see the heart behind people earnestly making their way to God. And I just think um, there's just this inherent tension. And I just think we need to recalibrate our understanding of what excellence 
is um, and creating a space where people are free and encouraged to bring what they authentically have to bring um, and not shamed into holding it back until it looks better or sounds better or meets external objectives more. I, I think that is really beautiful, but I think you have to have eyes to see it. And I'm, I feel like the Lord is maturing me um, so that I can understand more and more that this is for the Lord. It's not for me as a pastor. It's not even for the people in the room. It's for Jesus. And so if what people offer offends Jesus, then that's a problem. But if what people offer offends my sense of what's good enough, that's, that's an opportunity. Well, it's an opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. And I and I think, you know, particularly, it's not that I think we shouldn't have really um, brave conversations about what worship should look like, because I think particularly as people called to do multi-ethnic communities, like worship reflects our culture. And so what it looks like when people come with just really different cultural expectations of what excellence is, like we can't avoid talking about that. We need to talk about that. Um, and we need to like just create spaces where people can tell the truth because whether we are, whether we are telling the truth, it still is the truth. So anyway, I, I just am sort of astonished at, at the beauty of what people do and what people give and how brave they are um, and what a privilege it is to bear witness and support people in that. And um, anyway, so that's it. As you were talking about that, I just had the image of my um, child um, when he was first learning to walk. And I remember, you know, him taking a couple of steps forward then a step back and then falling on his bottom. And it was, it was not excellent, but in our eyes, it was the most beautiful. It was astonishing. It gave us great joy. His effort was, I remember just being mesmerized by seeing him take his first steps. And that's how I, um, uh, heard you uh, when talking about uh, these folks at the Grove who are not offering what is the best, but offering their best. And right. in the eyes of God, it is beautiful and wonderful. Well, and what I think is so interesting, particularly about a community like ours, is like what is the best to me is not going to be the best to the person sitting next to me, right? Just because of my own cultural like formation, right? So things that's, I mean, it just is really different. Like my preferences are really different than the preferences of my neighbor. And what I understand as excellent is really different than my neighbor. And so just being able to have this openness to um, the mystery of, you know, Lord, open my eyes to see the beauty that I might not be able to see without the light of Christ and, and just that deep humility. I mean, because I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be, um, I want to be clear. There are just so many people who are so exceptionally gifted, um, in our community. And I think in every community, there's so exceptionally gifted. Um, but I also think it's just so easy for us to get focused on the gifts mm -hmm. and the expression of the gifts mm -hmm as opposed to 
God. And I, my seminary professor, preaching professor, Anthony Campbell, who just, um, was such a formative mentor to me. Like he told the story and I wish I could remember the names and the details, but he basically told the story about a preacher who, um, was widely recognized, um, to be not that great. He was just not that great of a preacher. And he just had these amazingly successful, fruitful, um, revivals. Like he was not that great. And he would go out and preach these sermons and people would come to the Lord and other people who were amazingly gifted preachers were like confounded and then actually like offended. Like how come we are objectively better at this than you are, but you are more fruitful in the, in the vineyard than we are. Like that does not make sense. And like you tell the story of this encounter, like how, how come the guy's like, it's because I'm not that great. It is because I'm not that great that all of the emphasis and all of the glory goes to God and people have an encounter with Jesus and not with my gifting. And I just think, you know, that, that, that's, that's a thing. And that's I, and good. I mean, I think it's, there's just this tension that's built in that we love God and we want to bring God our best, um, and also to recognize that what we bring to God is not the point. And I actually wonder, and this is like pure speculation. I, I, I love what you just said. What we bring to God is not the point. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that's not what we're there to God worship. God is our the own point. Gifts. And I actually wonder, apropos to nothing, I have zero permission to think this, but I wonder, I wonder if that was the big deal with Cain and Abel. Like, I wonder yeah. if Cain looked at Abel's gift and was like, what the what? Yeah. Like, we read the story and we mm. go like, God preferred Abel's gift. And so we assume, because it just seems so self-evident to us, that Abel's gift must have been better. But I wonder if the thing that made Cain so angry is that Abel's gift wasn't better, that he was looking at his own gift and just being like, no yeah. way, no fair. How dare you? My gift is more valuable. My gift is better. How dare you prefer her? And if what, again, I'm just wondering, I don't have permission, mm-hmm. but I, you know, but if what really just drove him crazy that he couldn't let go of was how can God prefer a clearly inferior gift? And if what God loved was just, you know, the heart of Abel in his giving, right? That God judges the heart. And I think we are just so consumed by externalities, even in, even and especially in the body of Christ, which is amazing when we follow a savior who con- like absolute popular opinion was this guy's a loser. He's pathetic. He's embarrassing. He had potential, but he bombed out. He was shameful. Like no one could see the glory of God in him because nobody had eyes to see it. And so I just think it's so interesting that we just have such a clear confidence that we know what's good and we know what's bad and we know what it all should look like instead of just having this sense of like, Lord, I don't know how you see the gifts that we put on the altar. And I love, and you'll know where it's coming from, but I mean, I love the command and injunction, you know, who are you to judge another man's servant? Mm -hmm. Like everyone we're worshiping with is not our servant. So to say, (laughs) you know, if the Lord has something to say about someone's 
posture in worship, that's, you know, that's a Lord thing. And if someone came to me and said, Hey, what do you think about X, Y, or Z? Or if I felt that someone was doing something in worship that was actually causing harm, then I would address it. But there's a, you know, over the years, there've just been many times that I've been like, Lord, I'm uncomfortable with how this person is saying this, or I don't think this thing is true, but also I just have this deep sense of like, just hands off. Um, so anyway, that's what I'm, that's actually what I'm astonished and thinking about. So you can, (laughs) okay, well, you know, we still don't quite get how upside down, inside out, contrary to our thinking, the kingdom of God really correct, is. Correct, correct. Right? And we really want to still make the kingdom conform to our preferences. Mm-hmm. And our expectation. And mm-hmm. our comfort level. And our comfort level. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And I do think, you know, we're talking about our word of the year in the Grove as unconditional. And I think, you know, just understanding that God, God is not offended by people who are displaying the gifts that God has given them to display. And God is not offended at people's weaknesses. I just think, and we often are, and, and I think just sort of being able to say like, well, if God can show up and like the, the text we used last week was Jacob. And so like if God can show up in Jacob and he's just a jerk and just make him these promises to, to address and heal his fundamental sense of uh, scarcity, God is basically showing up and saying like, look, I'm, I am going to keep my promises. I am going to take care of you. I am going to give this land to you. So, so if you really believed that you wouldn't need to hustle and trick and cheat like you would just know that you could trust me and like all of these sort of behaviors that are coming out of that fundamental sense of just insecurity um would be addressed right so god does not show up and tell jacob what he deserves to hear but what he needs to hear from god and god has that kind of unconditional love and we live in a world that we really feel like no you need to give people what they deserve um that way they'll be motivated to act right and we kind of still bring that into our faith communities and you know i i hesitate to talk about unconditional love because i know how it's been weaponized and it certainly doesn't mean that we need to allow people to you know, be abusive or to harm or to protect people from the natural consequences of their actions. But it does mean we give people not what they deserve, that we have a community that's not, um, that that's just not the fundamental question that we ask of one another, what does this person next to me deserve? Um, but sort of what, what does the, what does it look like to love the person next to me? Um, yeah, I love that you said, God is not offended by Mm -hmm. our weaknesses. And really, Scripture teaches us the very opposite, that God seems to be attracted to Mm -hmm. our weaknesses. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. God chose the weak things of the world to conform the wise, to confound the wise. Um, And I... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, as we looked at the the beginning of the Sermon on on the Mount this past Sunday, one of the things that, that... 
that just kept coming up for me as I studied it is we are in this cultural moment with social media that's all about saying to the whole world, see how I'm winning in life. Mm -hmm. See how great my life is. I have new house, new boat, new this. Look at these clothes. I'm, I'm dressed. My kid made the Dean's list. Yes. Hashtag blessed. And it's a real, uh, we, we've seemed to, we've redefined the word blessed and the Sermon on the Mount comes down in the midst of all of our social media and says, no, it's not the people who look like they are winning who are blessed. It's those who look like losers who are blessed. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, this is the fundamental understanding of Shalom, that essentially when the kingdom fully is realized on earth. It will be a restoration as it was in the beginning, is now in the body of Christ and forever will be. It will be this restoration of shalom, of the mutual interdependent flourishing of welfare for every living and every created thing. And so when we seek to bless um, and side and stand with those who are weak, with those who are not flourishing, then we are following the lead of the spirit and participating in what God is doing. And that's, you know, that's not a a government program that can be enacted, but it is something that people of faith have to understand. And too often, again, like our obsession with excellence really is this backdoor way, I think, for the enemy of our souls to convince us that some people are just simply more worthy and matter more and have more value than others. And I've said to the saints at Dorado Church, allow me to acknowledge how difficult it is for you to be a part of a ministry like this. Mm-hmm. Because I know to many people, to, to some of your friends and family, this looks like a losing group of people. Correct. And if you have on the inside of you a deep need to appear successful, Mm -hmm. then you, and I'm not knocking mega churches, but you need to be a part. You, You have this great desire to be a part of something that looks powerful and successful. Mm hmm. And this thing that we are a part of, we are here because we sense that the great God of heaven in the name of Jesus, by the power of the spirit is here and is in mission in and among us. And yet we look around and it doesn't look so, it doesn't look shiny. It doesn't Mm -hmm. look excellent. It doesn't look like anything that you would stick your chest out and be proud of. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that if, if you don't have a space of unconditional love and belonging, then you can't be a part of the foolish stumbling block scandal of the cross, right? You're going to, you just won't have the interior peace that will allow you to say, this looks like a losing fight. This puts me on the opposite side of powerful people who I respect. This looks like a waste of time. This looks like a waste of my talents. And yet I see value here. And so I'm going to live out my values. I'm not going to live for the approval of 
the world yeah. that's passing away. But I'm also not going to live as in, in a, I'm not going to live in defiance, like an against as an enemy of what's passing away. Right. Yes. Um, I'm sorry. You were going to say something. No, I was just thinking. So Jesus on the cross, some mocked him. Mm -hmm. He saved others, cannot, cannot save, save himself. himself. Yeah. And yet a centurion looking at the same Jesus, same cross, truly, this is the, the son, son of, of God. God. And that's just an excellent example of like why we both are part of something new, but we're not against, you know, our enemies are not flesh and blood, but these powers and principalities, because it makes no sense that a centurion who had risen up high in the system that Jesus was dismantling, a centurion who probably helped nail Jesus to the cross, right? Like he was Absolutely. not an innocent bystander he was deeply entrenched in the system and yet you know the people who were being crushed by the system were also reinforcing it by heaping scorn on jesus and calling for his crucifixion and asking for barabbas the you know they it was the person who was deep at the center and inside of it and frankly may or may not have had the courage or will to leave it but he saw the truth that the cross was the glory, was the glorification of Jesus, right? And so this idea that we think, you know, I think we're so stuck in our binary thinking of like, some people matter and some people don't. And a lot of us can see the world as it is right now and are like, what makes me so mad is that the people who don't matter matter and the people who do matter don't. And what we just want is to flip it upside down so that the good people get good things and the bad people finally get bad things instead of understanding that Jesus is coming to say, hey, there's not going to be a hierarchy anymore. There's going to be a restoration of shalom. Now, I think there are going to be people, and this is how I read, you know, a lot of the wailing and gnashing of teeth texts. I think there are people who would rather be suffering in misery and still part of a hierarchy than to be invited into a table of blessing. And there are some people who think if there is something good that everyone can have, then it isn't good. It can't be And good. I don't want it, right? And, and that's sort of... I think the problem is when we think I'm too excellent to be in community with losers, we just excellent ourselves all the way out of the church, right? So I know we're running out of time because we started late and I have to pick up my child, but that leads me to what I'm thinking about, right? This binary thinking. Last week, you said something that I could not stop thinking about. You brought up the subject of well, basically, you didn't use these words. These are my words. But basically, the subject was white people doing black things, mm -hmm. right? So, um, like, I have not. I mean, that's just, I'm driving my car, and I'm just thinking about, like, really, how do I feel about this? What do I think about this? And it's it's a bit complicated. Right. Can I, I just, in case somebody didn't listen, we were talking about should a historically white church acknowledge Black History Month? And if yes. so, how? And, and sing certain gospel songs. What, or We Shall Overcome. We Shall Overcome. Or, yeah. Right. So, um, so I was driving my car one day last week, and I, I thought of these white artists that black people love. And you, have you heard the term blue-eyed soul? No. So, oh, you have that because it's old. Like it's like my parents' generation, right? So we love certain blue-eyed soul artists. Like back in the day, Michael McDonald. For a long time, I thought he was a black man. Um, 
back in the day, there was this woman who played bass guitar, um, Strawberry Blonde, Tina Marie. Uh, let's see. We love, um, what is that guy's name? Um, uh, the, the band was uh, Hall and Oates. I don't, I can't remember which one was Daryl Hall, which one was John Oates, but white guy, right? So there, there, there is a place where black people appreciate white people who step into the culture, who are influenced by it, who, who love it, value it, appreciate it in such a way that they can become a part of it. And then the flip side of that, we, we are also very aware of those people who can exploit black culture. Like Elvis. Yes, right? So you, you get this, this white man from Tupelo, Mississippi, who is surrounded by um, blues and soul artists. Um, he is allowed to be on stage dancing in a way that, you know, white fathers would not want their precious pearl white daughters screaming, you know, at a black man doing the same thing, but he can do it, right? Um, and so we are very aware of, of the tendency of white people to adopt black culture and to uh, prosper because of it. There's um, black fishing, uh, uh, mostly women who uh, take on a style, uh, makeup, hair. Kim that, Kardashian is someone people talk yes, about a lot. That that um, makes them appear that they are black. like they have African features, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's a thing we are aware of that as well. And so, but but we so we we know that there's there's both sides of that. And so when it comes to church, I think there's got to be a place that you've just, you know, you, you, were, you were in the ballpark. This whole idea of, of excellence and weakness where we welcome white people singing, I'm going to say, our songs mm -hmm. in ways in which we would not sing them in ways that don't quite sound right to us, in ways that may not even have the same kind of spiritual, emotional impact, but we've got to have eyes to see a certain, not, I don't want to downplay it, not a certain kind of beauty, but a beauty and a power in it. Because what's also happening in this cultural moment that we're in is that there are some demonically brilliant minds who are moving in this society, giving the message to white people have nothing to do with those people. Their culture, their history, their thinking, their pain. I think, no, not think. It was my observation 
especially during the George Floyd protests, mm-hmm. that many of the white powers that be were terrified to see white young people in the streets protesting the death of a black man at the hands of a white police officer. Mm-hmm. I think it scares to no end white supremacists to think that there is a generation of young people, white people, coming up who understand, who see, who value, who in many ways can get inside of black culture because it means that if they don't go to the extreme of exploiting it, right, wanting um, black gifting without black pain, right, Mm -hmm. they don't go to that terrible place, then it means that they will find a place of Proximity. Yes. And it may quicken the mm-hmm. death of white supremacy. Yeah, I think... Um, and so that's yeah. why I think it is it is crucial. I mean, it's just, it's vital to have white people sing our songs, mm-hmm. to have white people... <laughs> as a part of the culture in a way that and we, we might give you a side eye every once in a while. Um, yeah. I, I, well, I mean, I think like it, what you said is really important. Allies. I know? mean, I think what you said is really important because I mean, I think that's a place where the pronoun matters. So, I mean like for, for um, white churches to be able to, or, or historically white churches that are, transforming or seeking transformation um, to become healthy and holy, holy multi-ethnic um, communities to be able to say, we understand that this is a song, where this song came from, um, who the Lord gave it to, what how it has been used by the Spirit. And we aren't here pretending that that previous history doesn't exist. And we are not here claiming that we're entitled to sing this song, um, but we are joining in in the in acknowledgement that the truth named in this song um, was birthed within the African American community, but it is the will and revelation of God. And so someday, this is what the realm of God will look like. And so, as a white person, you're saying. Nothing in my, this song craves my validation, right? Like I am not saying now that I'm singing it, it, it is something new that it wasn't before. I'm saying I now understand that this is the song of my future transformation and you sing it in, in hope and in humility. Um, and also I just think, you know, as every, you would be the first to say in 101 in trying to be a, a person healing from white supremacy is to recognize that like, obviously 
the black community is not a monolithic. And so the way that you feel about this is not the way that every black person feels about this. Correct. And I think as a white person, it is really important that if you're, if you want to, to be part of the healthy and holy multi-ethnic community, then obviously it's going to be important to you always to be wondering like, am I, am I doing this well? Am I unintentionally causing harm? Like, can I listen deeply and learn? And also to recognize that there are going to be some people of color and some black people who are not going to be interested in being in relationship with you because of the depth of the pain of these systems. And to, it's just really important to say, so do you still want to be a part of this, even though you know that you're not going to get a cookie from everyone? Like, do you still believe that this is what the Lord is calling us to? And so you're willing to experience rejection both from inside and outside of the community? Um, are you willing to understand that that pain and separation is the poisonous fruit of the tree? And this is just one tiny way to experience some of the magnitude of harm. There's no comparison. It's not the same, but to say like, yeah, this is why white supremacy has been such a toxic system that you can't just snap your fingers and go like, well, I'm one of the good guys now. And all of a sudden everybody wants to be in relationship with you. People don't, um, for good reasons. And to understand that it is going to be a manifestation of the glory of God when healing comes and, and nothing else. And that, you know, a lot of people aren't interested and if there's a fault, it lies in the mountains of harm that have been perpetrated by not just white leaders, but white citizens of this country. And like, I, I mean, I think I've said before, I'm just haunted by that phrase. If you can inherit money, you can inherit guilt. And and that's just part of the, the burden. Um, so yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And I think also just to say it's messy. It is very, it's very messy. messy. And it's so messy. if you're looking for like this one path yeah. that you can walk on and you will never screw up and you will never make anyone mad and okay. Or if you're thinking as I often am like, okay, I'm okay if white people are mad at me, but please let me do this in a way that, you know, no people of color will be mad at me. No yeah. black people will be mad at me. That path does not exist. Yeah. And so, you know, um, Dorada church hosted the, Christmas concert of the African Community Choir uh, this past December, and there is one white woman in the choir. It's it's all African, Black African women, and then there's one white woman. And you 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 try out for this group, and um, I remember toward the end of the concert, this one white woman uh, had a solo, mm -hmm. and um, the the rest of the choir and um, uh, those gathered hyped her up. Mm -hmm. Like, come on, sister, you can do it. You got it. You got it. Right? As they did all the other right. soloists, right? Because right. that's what we do. That's how we roll. And so, um, like, I'm asking myself, I'm watching this, because I'm in the back at the, with the video camera. It's like, okay, what, what, what's, what's happening here? Um, are we doing this simply because she's white and we're just glad white people like our stuff? Um, and so at the end, and, and I have no idea who this person is. Right. So at the end of the concert, I started asking, hey, tell me about the white girl in the choir. Like I literally asked the question that way. And they say, oh, 
she's from South Africa. Mm-hmm. She's only been in this country. She she is African, and um and so I I sat with that for a while and thought, oh, she, and and she, again, she's the only white person in this choir. She is willing to be a minority mm-hmm. when she could just take the comfort of being in the majority, both there in South Africa mm-hmm. and, well, actually, no, the white people are the, in num- terms of number, the, in terms of numbers, they are the minority, but they have the, the power and, and the wealth. But she could just really be comfortable here as part of the majority. But she has chosen to, to take on the discomfort, if at whatever level the discomfort comes, of being a minority in this choir. And I, I, I think there's, there's a lesson there for white people. Mm-hmm. If you are engaging in this work for um, a certain level of applause, as you say, to be seen as one of the good ones, then you're really going to miss something. It is the, 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 the messy world of both. We're, we're going to hype you up because we, mm-hmm. we, we, we really do like people that can do black stuff pretty well. Um, but they're going to be there, there's going to be discomfort mm-hmm. um, and if you can if you can lean into that man i just think that's powerful well and i just think as christians we ought to be able to right because we understand that we are both saints and we are sinners and that we are always going to be negotiating sin and and it is not i am not saying um that being white, being who and how God created you, being in the body that God created you to be in is not a sin. But correct in our culture, white supremacy and the systems that is founded are destructive and sinful and sort of having to constantly negotiate how, how do I live? <laughs> like where, where do I, where do I leverage my privilege? Where do I let it go? Where do I stand? How do I how do I not be obsessed with myself and appearing a certain way, but really be interested actually in the work of reconciliation and in blessing my neighbors and to care about that more than to care about what I look like. And to, so when someone can come to me and say, Hey, when you made X choice, when you stood up in this way, when you did it, instead of feeling defensive, like, no, no, I'm a good person. We can really say it's like, well, actually I care if I caused harm, because I want to be a part of the beloved community. So I'm not surprised. I'm not offended. I can grieve it. I can have all of my feelings. But ultimately, what I want to say is I'm a part of a tradition where I am allowed to be a sinner saved by grace. I am allowed to need the Savior I have. This is not new news for me. And I am learning how to be forgiven and how to seek forgiveness so that then I know how to give forgiveness. Um, anyway, okay. Yolanda was sending me the timeout signal because we've got to, we've got to go. I'm sure you'd love for us to talk to you for another two hours. We could totally do that, <laughs> but we won't. Um, thanks for listening. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's church, Derida Presbyterian church, you can go to, oh, please help me. www.faithlifesites. Wait, what? What? <laughs> what is happening right now? <laughs> I'm two steps you, forward, one step it's back. It's deridachurch.faithlifesites.com. You, you just left off the right church. You just went straight to the hard part that yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. D-E-R-I-T-A-Church.FaithLifesites.com. That's sites with an S. You can also find the Derida <laughs> Church podcast and the Derida Church YouTube channel. 
check it out. They worship at 11 a.m. here in Charlotte in the QC. And if you would like to find out about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to the website. It is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out our podcast and our YouTube channel. Um, look for The Green Tree. Thanks for oh, worship with us at 10. Please worship with us with 10, at 10 if you like. And thanks for listening. And we will talk to you next week.